This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Play Script Director Welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, located in Times Square, 42nd Street, the heart of the theatre, where Broadway, Off-Broadway, and Off-Off-Broadway all come together to bring that magic that is live theatre. The American Theatre Wing is perhaps best known for its Tony Awards, which it created, but it is more than that. It is a year-round organization, and perhaps we are the longest-running, ongoing, nonprofit organization devoted to the community, service in the community, through the theater. What was started a long, long time ago, First World War, continues through the Second World War, and continues today, bringing live professional theater to hospitals and to institutions, making sure that youngsters in our Saturday Theater for Children program are given an awareness and an appreciation of what it is to go to live theater on Saturday mornings. They are committed to going to the theater. We hope that this will be a lifetime program for them, the, that, that they will go and buy a ticket to a theater because it is a need and because they know that this is the only way to enjoy theater, not wait for that anniversary or the birthday. This is truly the audience of the future. What we're doing here are the seminars. They come out of a school program that was started <coughs> after the Second World War so that veterans could come back and once more do their trade, work in the theater. These seminars are an outgrowth of that and they are designed to give you a behind the scenes look what it is to work in the theater, what it is to perform, what it is to write, and what it is to produce in the theater. Our seminar today is on the play script and the director. And I'm going to turn this seminar over to Jean Dalrymple, who is a member of the board of the American Theater Wing. She is a director, a playwright, and an actress. And George White, who is president of the O'Neill Foundation, and a wonderful, wonderful man of the theater. Thank you all for being here, and promptly we go to Jean and George, who will introduce the panel to you. I'm Isabel Stevenson, and I am president of the American Theater Wing. Thank you, Isabel. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here with uh, these distinguished members of the panel, 
and my whole partner in crime, Gene. Uh, and uh, I'd like to start by introducing on my far right, Mr. Paul Benedict, who is the director of Frankie and Johnny in the Claire de Lune. He also directed Terence McNally's It's Only a Play, and his regional credits include Our Town, Crimes of the Heart, and Beyond Therapy. Next to him is John Weidman, who is the co-author of the new book, For Anything Goes. And he's written for the theater, movies, television, and including the book for Pacific Overtures. And my immediate right is uh, David Henry Huang, who is making his Broadway debut with the play M. Butterfly. Um, he is the author of several critically acclaimed plays, including FOB, for which he won the Obie Award, and The Dance and the Railroad and Family Devotions. Jean. Thank you. Uh, on my far left is uh, Mr. Uh, Jeremy Nussbaum, and he's what's become known as a theatrical lawyer. It doesn't mean that he himself is theatrical. It means that he deals in theater matters, and he has dealt very well and for many years, and his clients include people who are right here on the panel, including uh, Timothy Krauss and John Weidman and Terence McNally. And uh, I'd like you to all meet Jeremy Nussbaum. Very nice man. <laughs> and next to him is Robert Calfin. He most recently directed Rashomon at the Roundabout Theater. Awfully good. It's, uh, it hasn't opened yet, has it? It's closing this weekend. It's been playing there for three months. <laughs> really? I tried to get tickets and they said it hasn't opened yet. <laughs> I know somebody. <laughs> his his uh, Broadway credits include Strider. Yentl, which I loved, by the way. Yentl was marvelous. And Happy End. He's the founder director of the Chelsea Theatre Center. And next to him is uh, the great Terence McNally. And he has a really wonderful show right now, the Frankie and Johnny and the Claire de Lune. I just loved it. It's at the Manhattan Theatre Club. And uh, he also wrote, it's only a play, Bad Habits, The Ritz, and the book for the rink, which I also thought was just great. I wish you were a critic. <laughs> I am. I mean, writing. <laughs> and, and right next to me is the son of an old dear friend of mine, Timothy Krauss, and he's the other co-author of the new book, For Anything Goes, which was originally co-authored by his father, Russell Krauss. And I was just telling him that Russell Krauss, when I first knew him, was a very famous play, uh, publicist. And when John Golden asked me to publicize something, he said, write a release about this. And I called him up and said, what is a release? <laughs> he said, I can't explain it. I'll come over and write one for you. <laughs> anyway, this is Timothy Krauss. And uh, uh, he's a writer, a political columnist for Esquire, and a contributing editor of The Village Voice and Rolling Stone magazine, Timothy Krauss. And of course, we all begin by asking, uh, how did you get this idea? What made you think of doing uh, a new book, For Anything Goes? Or, or which one of you did? <laughs> well, I, I, I guess it was me. Uh, and I went to John. Uh, I think it was just, it, it seemed to be an idea whose time had arrived. Uh, the, the old version seemed to have served its purpose. 
uh, it wasn't being done that much anymore on the road or in stock, uh, and it seemed to be time for, for, for a new shot, uh, shot of life for it. And uh, this was 1982, I think, that I asked John if he'd be interested in doing it. Uh, and we did a couple of, uh, uh, we, we, I think, two or three versions of it before we got a director. The first thing I said was no. I didn't, didn't want to sit down and rewrite somebody else's work. But it, he, he, we talked about it some more, and it began to seem as though it would be fun. And we sat down and took a crack at a, at a first draft, and it turned out that it was fun. And so we played around with it and fiddled around with it, and then we went out to find somebody who'd be interested in producing it. What were the nature of the changes? Because a lot of us, including myself, as old as I am, I don't remember the original. What, what did you, what, what was, was it that you took? Did you take a different tact, or what did you do to change it? Well, I, uh, I think that the, that, the, that the first thing that we examined was the, uh, the characters themselves. And the characters, uh, th well, I'll go back <laughs> to the beginning. Uh, this book was written in extreme haste in 1934. And that was not a characteristic of my father and Howard. They wrote uh, slowly and with great care. Uh, but in this instance, they'd been called in to, uh, to fix somebody else's work. And they only had a month. And Howard was, uh, was actually um, uh, staging the show during the days. And my father had a job working for the Guild. And, uh, uh, they had to work nights and on the weekends. And they ha hadn't finished the final scene on the way up to the, um, uh, to the opening for Boston. So uh, it was done in great, great haste. And uh, it was quite good, but uh, the haste, I think, shows. And so what we had to fix, first of all, were problems in the characters. They were kind of shallow characters. And they weren't always very coherent. Uh, they would do one thing in one scene and another in another, and uh, wasn't clear about the motivation. So the first thing that we did was to s sit down and, and think through all the characters again, who they were, why they did what they did. And when we uh, looked at that, then we almost came up with, in some instances, new characters. And, and that's how we began. Well, it was written originally as a vehicle for Ethel Merman. Right. And that is why they just sort of quickly put it together. And, uh, uh, and that was why they were so hasty. They had to do it in time to hold her to that show. Mm -hmm. I we remember it well. You know, I go back so far that I remember all these things. <laughs> Not that long. There were issues of, of uh, pacing and the duration between numbers and the way in which the numbers landed in the book, which we s simply addressed as we went along and which we tried to correct. And once we had a, uh, a working draft, the rest of that process proceeded with Jerry Zachs, the director, participating almost as a, as a collaborator. Uh, and of course, as we got into the rehearsal process and the preview process, um, uh, we would be testing material on stage and then taking it out, fixing it, putting it back, so on and so forth. But we wanted to fashion a musical book which would feel as though it had been written in 1933, um, but which would be, uh, which would have character, consistent characters uh, with uh, uh, understandable problems, uh, which an audience would, would sit through in 1988. Uh, musical books have changed a great deal in 50 years. Yeah, yeah. that's really awfully good. Just marvelous. <laughs>
And you can't get tickets to it. But try, try, don't please. Go to the box office. <laughs> yes. uh, let's see. Uh, uh, I'd like to ask uh, Mr. Wong about his marvelous play. Uh, I, I heard you in the dressing room say that you had read about it in the paper and you thought that's an interesting subject. <coughs> Well, basically, it started actually even before I read in the paper. It, uh, I was having a dinner party one night, and someone came over and he said, "Well, did you hear about this French diplomat that fell in love with a Chinese actress and they had this affair for twenty years and it turned, it turned out to be a man?" And I thought, "A, I thought that was interesting." And then B, something, something inside me also went, "Well, of course there was a French. Of course the French diplomat never knew it was a, never knew it was a, a man." And then I thought, "Well, why did I think that?" And so that uh, sort of inspired me to uh, figure that there was something about this topic which resonated for me. And um, that led me to, you know, put it back in the hopper and let it percolate for a while until I popped up with a play. Oh, it's very, very hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How long did it percolate before the play came? Um, I think I heard about the idea in July, and then I started writing the play in September, and I read the first draft uh, about six weeks, over September to the middle of October. It seems like a short time for yeah. a play like M. Butterfly. Well, it's, I always find that once I, what I call breaking the back of the story, once I've got the back broken, the actual writing comes fairly quickly. In this case, breaking the back of the story meant uh, the idea of sort of um, dovetailing the plot of the spy story with um, the plot of Madame Butterfly. Once I got that, then the writing itself came quite quickly. And I think with the, the hook of the, of the Chinese opera mm -hmm. actor, actress, right. you know, um, Seemed to, uh, did that come to you first? Well, I mean, it, in reality, this Chinese spy was a Chinese opera star. And in Chinese opera, as in the kabuki, more actually in the kabuki, the uh, women's roles are played by men. And there's this whole aesthetic in, in Japanese theater about the onagata, which is the, the, the men that play women's roles, that um, the notion is that a man has to play a woman because a man can play the ideal version of a woman, whereas a woman can only play a woman. And that's, that's sort of an inherently sexist concept because real, what it is, it's, it's, it's a man can play a man's idealization of a woman. But I thought this wasn't, I thought, well, wasn't this actually what happened in this situation, that this man, this Chinese spy, could play the Frenchman's idealization of a woman. And therefore, it seemed to me to be an interesting way to use the concept of the onagata in a Western play. It's a very compelling hook. Thank it you. really is. Do you want to say something, Isabel? No, I just wanted to go on to get away from China and go on to off Broadway. Well, <laughs> I, I was I, I wanted to 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 ask uh, uh, Terence something uh, uh, to throw out here a, uh, uh, a an old unwritten law and have him and then we have two uh, distinguished uh, directors here today. Uh, there seems to be actually more than an unwritten law about. Um, playwrights directing their own plays. Um, and I know a lot of people probably have very, very strong feelings about that. Uh, have you ever thought about what, directing, uh, for instance, Frankie and Johnny? No, absolutely not. I, I've never uh, wanted to, uh, to direct for a very simple reason. I don't have the, the patience or the concentration. If I'm writing a play, I can stop in 10 minutes and go get myself a Diet Coke or <laughs> turn on the radio or take a walk. A director has to sit there eight hours a day because the actor's going to say, do you like it better this way or that way? And you've got to know what they're talking about. And the day I decided I truly never wanted to direct was after a very long 
rehearsal and technical thing, the actors came and said, should I wear the blue shoes or the red shoes? And I thought, oh, God, if someone came up to me at 2 in the morning wondering what pair of shoes to wear, I'd, I'd hit them. So I, <laughs> I said, I think I'd better stay. stay uh, but as an aesthetic, I, I think there's some playwrights who direct their work wonderfully, and I think there's some, director, uh, some playwrights who direct their work very poorly. But I, I just, I, I don't have that, those skills. It's hard enough to write a play. Why? Give yourself another 300 tons to carry on your back. So, Mr. Benedict, how do you deal with the actors and the play? Oh, well, Terence says it's a matter of patience, but, I mean, we ask, well, how does a mother do those first six months with her infant, you know, the, the 3 a.m. feedings and all that, which seems like a, a miracle. You don't mind them asking red or blue shoes at 2 a.m. Well, that's a director you know, talking. They really are children, right. and yeah. they're your children for a while. Mm -hmm. And, uh, no, you don't mind that at all. So when you started... Um, what did you think? Of? Did you did did you cast the people with, with the authors and the producers? Yes, Terence had an enormous input into the casting, which I believe in, and uh, with some playwrights. And uh, uh, actually, in this in the case of Frankie and Johnny, um, Terence had a great deal to do with the casting. It was his notion to get Miss Kathy Bates. It was a wonderful thought. He came up with it first. Uh, I managed to get Ken Welsh out of an audition. I'm delighted to say we were very very lucky. Um, but uh, uh, was the question the casting? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there, there's only two characters, and that kind yeah. of accounts for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, but uh, <coughs> no, no, I would both listen. Perfect for the part. Yes, they are wonderful, aren't yes. they? Yes. And it's a, a very fine production. Thank you. And very, very well directed. <laughs> Thank you kindly. The Bob, you've you've been on both sides a little bit. You've done some writing too, so you know both sides of that. Uh, the business. I mean, I think of it. There's an old, there's a wonderful old cartoon of a talking dog uh, sitting on his agent's in his agent's office on a chair, saying, "What I really want to do is direct." <laughs> and um, you know, and that, there is a um, that's that's there's a lot of that around in the theater. What do you think about that uh, whole business of of the perspective and the objectivity and all that may go out the window? When I'm directing. I always want to have somebody around who I can say, what did you think of that? Did that work? I think it works, but I'm not sure. Maybe it's just maybe. Maybe I just like it. Is it really working? Um, when a playwright is directing a play, he's talking to himself. Not only is he evaluating his writing and how, he's working, how it's working, he's also evaluating performance and all of the other values. I think it's great to be in a position to sit back and say, uh, you know, when you're sitting back, you say, oh, I know why that doesn't work. Because you're sitting back. You're not in it. You're a little bit outside of it. You're in it, but you're, you, you can say, I mean, it's always, I mean, when, I'm, when I ran a theater and would have other directors working f under me when I wasn't directing myself, I could always be very brilliant just coming in two weeks into rehearsal and say, and, and say, I know why that doesn't work, but it's because I'm sitting at the back of the theater and I'm coming in and I'm seeing it never having, not filled with the problems <laughs> of the blue shoes or the red shoes, <laughs> you know, and say, oh, I, I think I know why that's not working. Um, I just think, uh, as I say, you're talking to yourself, I think, if you're the author and the director. And uh, as a director, I even need somebody to talk to. I, that's the best way I can answer that. Mm -hmm. uh, there's something, I want to go back to something that David said that, that, that interested me as a director when he talked about how the play came about. Um, I saw the story when it appeared in the newspaper, too. And I have a file of stories like that, which I've collected over the years. And I say, God, if only someone will pick this up and write a play about this. Or there's a play in this story. There's an amazing play in this story. 
And I, I think I have a file that goes back maybe 15 years now. To my, I have to move out of my apartment soon. But, but uh, say, what a great story there is in this and the resonance of this thing. And so sometimes I've gone around to writers as a director and say, hey, does this tempt you in any way? It, you know, and that, that's part of the frustration of being a director but not a writer uh, for me. Uh, I mean, the Yentl came about because an intern at my theater said, here's a wonderful short story by Isaac Singer. I think it would make a play. And that's how we ended up, I found somebody to write, work, write the play, you know. Uh, I just wanted to comment on that. I'm so glad yeah. <laughs> you got the same <laughs> clipping up that I did. I well, loved your play. I know a lot of playwrights who wish they'd seen that clipping. They said, where was You saw that we didn't see. About eight of us were talking about <laughs> What paper did this appear in? What page? <laughs> Not the Inquirer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jeremy, you haven't said a word. Do you want to say anything about dealing with these various great people that are here? <laughs> I'm not sure how to respond to that. Dealing with all these great people is great. <laughs> but uh, none of the issues they're talking about uh, thus far uh, yet reached the threshold where there's any legal question about it, and I'm not sure, uh, which is fine. <laughs> what about, uh, you do have legal problems, I would, well, problems, uh, or issues, let's put it that way, in, in, in a lot of the things, certainly uh, uh, taking a real story, mm -hmm. which is the story of the French diplomat, which is, was true, Renee. Uh, and uh, and the idea of the old uh, uh, the original book of, of anything goes, albeit that the, the I was going to say grandfathered, but fathered. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, those are issues that I think obviously have to come up, and you have to deal with. I assume in all of this, uh, sure. or are there rights? Was there any problem of uh, of depicting somebody like the the French diplomat? Well, I, I don't represent uh, Mr. Wrong. I'd love to know the answer to whether they had any problem, though. Um, we consulted a lot of lawyers on the question, and uh, basically th the consensus seemed to be that to the extent that you take an item that's in the news and you use the germ of that, but, but the events are basically fictionalized and the characters are fictionalized and it's just sort of the, the uh, basic fact of it that provides the genesis for the play. It's sort of like, um, for instance, in, in Equus, where Schaffer heard about these horses being blinded and then made his own story about it. Um, I wasn't really interested in writing a docudrama. I was kind of interested in reinventing these facts in my own imagination. And so therefore, the lawyers seemed to reach some sort of consensus that this was okay. Um, so no permission was sought right. or releases from right. it. Have you heard from the, from the principals uh, since the play appeared? Actually, actually uh, yes, we have. We've, uh, <laughs> uh, we've been, we're sort of in touch with the, um, the, the Chinese spy. Um, who is, uh, believe it or not, uh, who is act who's currently singing in a nightclub in Paris. Did he Paris. want to audition? <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he was arrested and put in prison, and then I had heard that Mitterrand had pardoned him, which was in fact the case. Um, but I'd heard it was for humanitarian reasons because he was sick, and in fact, I don't know why they pardoned him, because he's now in Paris singing in a nightclub. <laughs> so it's very interesting. Talking <laughs> your idea, which I think was fascinating. Uh, we're we're trying, we're thinking we may sort of try and bring him in at some point and uh, have him sort of tell the his actual story. Mm. And I think he'd probably like to do some singing here. I, I don't. <laughs> I don't think he she would be half as good as B. B. Wong. <laughs> Thank you. So. I'd like uh, to know where do you come in on, on the business end of. of um, 
as a lawyer, a theatrical lawyer. Well, and that depends. Do you act as manager as well, or do you just say, look, looking at the nitty-gritty <coughs> legal document? No, there are some uh, clients that I represent who do not have agents, and uh, in those circumstances, usually, if I'm involved at all, it would be at an earlier stage because they need help in terms of making the actual deal. Uh, frequently, where there is an agent involved, uh, I will only get involved at a later stage when there's actually a contract to, to look at. Um, in the case of Anything Goes, <clears throat> at, at different times, both Tim and John uh, had agents, but those were sort of fleeting relationships, and I was involved also because I uh, represent the Lindsay and Krauss interests. Um, and that was, uh, there was an, a long period of years in that where there were really no legal problems as such to address. What it was trying to do was keeping this production or the idea of this production afloat. Uh, when there were other people making perfectly legitimate inquiries, wanting to do a production of their own using some other version or wanting to do a different adaptation, uh, and recognizing that <coughs> from the standpoint of the existing owners of the existing material, those could represent real financial opportunities. Um, so the, the idea had to be to allow people to uh, believe that this production had some merit and some hope and that it uh, could pay off even if they were turning down something that might have been offered in the meantime. Um, that's a balancing act, a juggling act, uh, which I was doing. I don't really consider that a legal problem uh, as such. It was a personal problem, and in this instance, uh, it all paid off for all of those involved. Yes, and anything goes was a, obviously it's not a typical case since there were so many interests that's what involved. I was going to say. Yeah, Jeremy really was instrumental though, in, 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 in guiding us through this very long process of getting everybody lined up so that the production which is happening now could actually happen. So when there is not this kind of, of case where, where you've got all the legacies mm -hmm. that you have in this, uh -huh. uh, what do you do for a client? What, how, where do you come in on the client? Well, uh, again, that's up to the client. <clears throat> and uh, in the normal course, uh, most playwrights, in my experience, find their own productions. Uh, I think they uh, hardly ever turn to lawyers for that sort of thing with good reason, but I also tend to think that most agents, even the good agents, are rarely going around really submitting things. That is, I think the authors find their own. Uh, then it's a question of trying to, uh, to make the deal, as I said, with the production company. Many, many plays, probably the vast majority these days, uh, start in rather modest not-for-profit theaters <clears throat> and we're at, in which there isn't too much flexibility in terms of negotiating things. There you can spend a lot of time arguing about futures, what happens if it moves or if a movie is made or things of that sort. The actual circumstances of the production are fairly rigid because most of these theaters have to promise each playwright that no other playwright will get a better deal. Um, but it is in terms of making that deal and working that contract that is normally the, the point at which uh, I get involved. For uh, clients that can't afford it and want to have the extra input if they have an agent, I can get called earlier simply on the basis of, I th I'm thinking of making this deal, what do you think I of it? Mm -hmm. uh, that's simply an idea of having another head in the, uh, in the process to respond to something. Terrence, Thank I'd you. love to know how the idea of doing Frankie and Johnny and the Claire de Lune came into your brain, especially that opening scene. Mm -hmm. I, I, <laughs> I really don't know. I'm, I'm, that's not a play I read about in the newspaper. I do. There wasn't an item. Uh, I, uh, I, I don't know. Sometimes you sit down and an idea comes. If there was any notion for that play, maybe it was the, the WC music I sort of wanted to base it. I think more of the Bach Goldberg variations, actually. That's when I got, I wanted to write a play that was variations on something and a piece of music that was really very unemotional and kind of 
simple and uh, clear, and then and the play is very much influenced and about music too. For me, I mean, that's a subtext that wouldn't even interest an audience. But um, yes, I think that's uh, fascinating. But I, I, I usually write to music, and this is a play I vote very much to. The Glenn Gould, but you know, thank God for CD because they repeat themselves. <laughs> you just can leave it on all day, and uh, I sort of do that. And uh, it's also a way of knowing how long you've been working. You know, when I wrote the Ritz, I know it was all written to Rosini overtures, and uh, every time the the tape ended, I knew I'd worked for 30 minutes, and I could take a little little break. With CD, it's more timeless, but uh, it, it it's not really a play that you get an idea for. I don't think Frankie and Johnny. It's a it was it was feelings I wanted to talk about. I think and. The, the most unique thing about the writing of it, or the situation of it, was after it's only a play at Manhattan Theatre Club, Lynn Meadow, the artistic director there, said she would do my next play, Sight Unseen. And that, for the first time, maybe enabled me to write a play. I really wanted to write without sort of thinking, well, oh, I can write this love story, but what's the kind of love story Lynn maybe will want to do at MTC? I really took her at her word. And I didn't worry about anybody else liking this play. Uh, and that's probably the first time I've been so unconcerned about, you know, is it, yeah. you know, and when you write a play like The Rich, you think, well, this audience or, or The Rink, you know, that was a Broadway musical. Uh, I am aware of where I think a place, a play of mine is going to end up. And I was perfectly happy to have done Frankie and Johnny. We did it about a year ago, Paul, didn't we? Uh, at the experimental theater there, stage two, about. Mm -hmm about the size of this room. We did it there for three weeks, and I, I thought maybe that's all that would ever happen with the play. But I was very pleased. I, I got my chance to express myself, which is important. Um, yeah. After all these years, it still matters. <laughs> how did, how did uh, uh, you and Paul link up? Paul, how did, how did that all happen? How did you well, find each other and this play, and how that First worked? of all, I've worked with Terence for many years, but as an actor, uh, I, I appeared in uh, I guess first Bad Habits, one of his plays, which I'm, I'm not good at years, but it must have been around 72, two, three. Two three. <laughs> and uh, I've acted in a couple of Terence's plays. And um, so we've known each other off and on over the years. And I don't know how it came about the directing. I honestly don't know what the. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I think uh, uh, good actors can make, can make very good directors. And I think so much of the chemistry of director and playwright is casting. I mean, that's the real casting to me. And Paul always sort of shared my vision. He knew what my plays were about, and he never... The direct, Bobby Drivers was directing my work. Uh, he never had to explain to Paul what the attitude of the play was. I mean, you really ask actors and a director to share your vision of life for two hours, and, you know, it's every, that's why every playwright is so different from, a, from the other. And Paul was one of those actors who sort of heard the way I wrote and saw the world from the sort of strange angle I do, and uh, then he asked the director, it's only a play, and I, mean, I had no doubts that Paul would make a wonderful director. Uh, I was never nervous about, oh, will Paul uh, succeed at this? What uh, brought you into Rashomon as director? Oh, that's a, <laughs> it was very simple. They called me up, uh, up and said, would you like to do Mother Courage? And I said, yes. And then they said, well, we can't do Mother Courage. <laughs> How would you like to do Rashomon? I said, sure. That was, that was it. But actually, Gene Feist and I know each other for a long time. We both started our theaters in the same neighborhood in Manhattan in the Chelsea section. And uh, very often, we would talk about doing things together or send projects back and forth to each other in this I was already halfway there with Mother Courage, so I said, why not? 
Uh, I just want to comment on something that Terence brought out in terms of Lynn Meadow, that how the importance of an institution committing itself to writers rather than just to plays, mm -hmm. in the sense that if that's an act of faith that is very important if, in, in the sense of you're not just looking for a hit or if it's going to be wonderful, but you make an investment and a commitment in terms of someone's talent and imagination. You say, I don't care what it is, I just want to do your next one and I will do the one after that. That begins to give a, a, a base to a writer, Absolutely. which enables him to continue. And that's very, very important. And it doesn't matter if the next one doesn't work, because maybe the one after that or the one after that. It's not, uh, I just say that was such a wonderful thing that she did there. That's yeah. right. I must say that the, uh, the reason that I didn't know about Rashomon closing uh, was that when I called up, I had been invited by them to come and see it. And when I called, they said, oh, we don't want you to see it until it's open. It's, uh, it's in previews now. So they said, but we'll call you and we'll ask you to the opening. So I've never been invited to the opening. I didn't know it had opened. Mm. <laughs> I thought it was still in previews. <laughs> At the roundabout, they preview a long time, and this is the first time I've had that luxury as a director because, uh, of course, the theater needs to start paying the bills as soon as they can get a play open. But the fact that we were able to continue to work on the play for, I don't know, four to six, it felt like six weeks, it maybe was it was six, shorter, had to be six uh, from the first preview until the press came, and, and finally, you know, so often, particularly in an institutional theater where you're on a subscription basis and there's a limited run, you finally get how to do it when you <laughs> figure out how to do it right by the time you're closing, you know. Uh, I remember when uh, I was part of that exchange to Russia, which, in, which ended up with me bringing, uh, doing Strider here. I remember a Russian director came to this country and was invited to direct the Alley Theater, and she said, I don't understand America. In my country, it takes nine months to make a baby, you know? And <laughs> it was very interesting, a different approach to, to the, the length of time you prepare something. And most often, I mean, particularly in the nonprofit theater, you don't, in fact, I don't, nobody has it anymore, you know, six or eight weeks on the road before you say, okay, we're ready, <laughs> you know? So most of the time, you're finally getting the hang of, uh, hang of what you're doing it not only getting the hang of what you're doing, but being able to polish, to find nuance, to find detail and, and hone something. Uh, so I didn't mind the six or eight week preview period because it, you know, it, was, it was much further along than it would have been if we'd opened after four weeks rehearsal. Now, if anything goes, did that have, you had a, uh, out of town, you were at good speed. No, we, uh, we uh, went in rehearsal in New York and, and started previews at the Beaumont and uh, we previewed for about six weeks and, and uh, opened right there. Hmm. Yeah. But, but uh, just what the, uh, the uh, thing that you said that, that caught me about our, our situation was uh, Jerry Zachs, uh, the fact that he is such a fine actor himself helped us just, just so much uh, because what, what he brought uh, as soon as he came aboard was uh, seeing always how it would seem, how it would how it would actually be for the actors, how it would appear on the stage itself. Uh, and that was something that we had imagined ourselves, but not in the way that he did. He could see it so well uh, every time. And he could also see every time that something didn't work, that it hadn't arrived yet. 
uh, and he was very um, hard on us about that, and that was a tremendous help. He always had a solution for it also, which I think partly came from the acting and partly came from the fact that he's just so smart. <laughs> we had, I wanted to comment on something Bob said about the preview period. Uh, Greg Mosher and Bernie Gersten at, at the Beaumont are uh, enormously supportive and really made that a terrific place to do a show like this. And they were interested in giving us as long a preview period as we felt we needed um, uh, in order to get the pieces done as we thought we could get it done. Um, and we did preview for about six weeks, but towards the end of that period, or indeed uh, four weeks into it, we began to have skirmishes, or they did, with the New York Times. Um, uh, because the, it, it, it was announced to us that it was now the policy of the Times that um, if a play were running, uh, they uh, felt they had an obligation to their readers to review it. Um, so that to a certain extent, the, uh, our ability to preview, we might very well like to have previewed another week or two longer, although we felt we had done probably as much as we could before we passed out when we finally, <laughs> did, when we finally did open. But, um, to a certain extent, we were being, I won't say we were being dictated to by the New York Times, but the New York Times was, uh, was uh, we were getting heavy input from the Times as to when we had to open the show and permit critics to come in and see it. Yeah, I'm not sure that's terribly healthy. They say if people are paying money to see a show, they must see something about it in the press. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. I would like to ask, what would have happened if you said to the New York Times, no, we really are not ready, and we'd rather that you did not review this now. It would be a, a service to your readers not to. I don't know. I mean, we were quite happy with the way the show was coming together in previews, so there was never a moment where we felt like, oh, you know, we need more time to uh, uh, keep them away. Um, but we, we certainly wanted to feel as though we were in charge and in control of when the work was finished. Um, so I don't know. We didn't reach that point, so I don't know. Yeah, what we I think a very delicate situation, though, because the lack of opportunity to take shows on the road, I think, has hurt the theater adversely in New York mm -hmm. enormously. Uh, you know, you can rehearse till you're blue in the face in a room like this. The audience is the final character, especially on comedy, but especially comedy, but all plays. And to be denied an audience and then have a week or two of previews is really very, very short. Very when I first came to New York, every day in the Times, a little item, West Side Story, postponed six weeks. And you didn't think anything of it. It said after Washington, it would go to Boston before coming here. And those shows had, you know, a couple of months to, to hone themselves. And we're sort of denied that now. And... It's very, very difficult. You're one of the few plays that's gone out of town in a, it's, it's sort of a long, amazing. long I mean, time. Yeah, uh, in Butterfly, it's the first time I've had the experience of going out of town and, and going through that whole process. And we went to Washington, and we did four weeks in Washington. And um, it was, at first, I was sort of skeptical because I'd never done this before. And this wasn't, I grew up in the nonprofit theater. This wasn't something I was used to. <laughs> and I thought, well, it seems to me that if you do well in Washington, it doesn't guarantee you do well in New York. And if you do poorly, it just demoralizes everybody. <laughs> um, so that was sort of, I was kind of skeptical. But I found it really an amazing work process because you become, we, we, we generally got quite nice reviews in Washington, except we got not so nice review in the Washington Post. And consequently, um, our audiences for the second week or so weren't so good, but, you, but they started to pick up the third and fourth week. But it was just that um, it gave us an opportunity to, to become extremely obsessive about everything we were doing because you're in this very focused environment. Your friends aren't there, you know, wives, girlfriends, husbands, whatever. Nobody's there except the cast. And it becomes extremely intense. And, and every day you go to the show and then you do your rewrites and you change things. Uh, you know, every night you go to the show and every day you change things. And I just think it's a, 
incredible luxury, and I'm really glad I got a chance to do it. And it's also extremely expensive, which is why uh, this, uh, Stuart Oster, who's the producer, you know, has to be commended just for having the courage to do that. Well, he's fortunate because he's very rich. <laughs> we've, we've begun to there begins to be a new system for, in terms of works now being developed through nonprofit theater, going through reading and workshop uh, experience, being done in a regional theater far from New York, maybe going to a second or third regional theater before coming into New York. So it's an almost substitute. But it's absolutely true what Tyrant said. I mean, the audience is the best director in the world. I mean, the audience tells you. It's very interesting. I could tell from the reviews that Rashomon got which performance the, the critics were at. A lot of them will, uh, will call up and say, well, we're not going to come on, when, on the date when you said you'd like us to come. We have to come two days before or a day before that because we're doing something else. And I will know which preview they saw in terms of, and I could see, you know, the play was here, and then it was going to be here, and then it was going to be here. And uh, I know exactly which performance they saw. So you see different reviews for the same production, and of course they saw the production at different stages of being ready. Yeah. There it was. I'd like to ask, how much rewriting did you have to do in Washington based on what you saw and, and the, the suggestions? Was, the play was about 15 to 20 minutes longer in Washington. So mm -hmm. the first thing we did, we did was cut a lot. Um, and that's, I enjoy cutting, and I was glad to have the opportunity to sort of do a little bit every day instead of having to do big slashes and then sort of see if they work. Um, and then uh, I reworked the ending a few times. Um, we restaged the, 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 the final scene um, a lot, even actually in previous, right before previous year in New York. And, uh, and then I rewrote one of the characters. Um, so that's generally the amount of work I didn't do. Did DC. you approve of all the rewrites that you were being asked to do? How does a playwright feel about having to uh, rewrite while they're in production before? Well, I think it's essential if, if something's not working. I, I think the difference. Uh, from the novice playwright to the more experienced is you don't wait, you know, to, uh, now when I see something not working, I could just go home and rewrite it. In fact, I tend maybe to do too many rewrites. Paul and the actors would say, please, we're happy with the scene, but I feel if they're working all day, I should be doing something. So I, I kept bringing in pages, but uh, when, I, when I first was writing, I would sort of, you know, when the dentist is going around with the probe and he says, does that hurt? And you go, no, 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 because you don't want him to drill. Well, the things I didn't want to write, I was hoping people would notice them in the script when I was beginning. And like, this scene clearly doesn't work. And, you know, I'd get through the first week and say, God, no one made me rewrite that scene yet. <laughs> but now I sort of try to be a little ahead of that. And, but it's, 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 it's part of it. I don't know what famous person said 90% of writing a play is rewriting. And that probably is very, very true. Uh, Paul, what did, you, what did you do from the workshop? I mean, you did both did a workshop of three weeks, and then it moved. Uh, what did you find uh, the difference? I mean, how do, what, what happened between those two Well, I think uh, Terrence's events? play was pretty much there. This particular play was pretty much there. Uh, I remember that we, we took a, a, a very important uh, small vignette, a scene, and we shifted it in the first act from one place near the end to into the center of the, of the first act, and I think it worked better. And um, we did a lot of little snippets. We took off the last two lines of the play, for example, which is always a tricky thing to do, I think. Yeah. Um, the thing you were talking about before is very interesting. A lot of people would think that uh, what you have to watch for when you're a director is that a playwright wants to hold on to something desperately and he won't rewrite it or she won't rewrite it. But there's every bit as much danger or more so in the constant rewrites coming in and you have to be able to say to the playwright, what you've done here is remarkably good. What you're bringing in is very good writing, but we don't need it. It's not... <laughs> you, really, you must trust this. You must give this a chance to breathe, you know, and, and, and see, uh, try it in, with an audience. Yeah. 
Jerry Zaks on anything goes had a drawer in which he would put some of our rewrites. Uh, <laughs> and some of them remain there to this day. Before they, reading them, just put them right in. <laughs> no, no, he would, he would just take a look at them as they passed in front of his face. He just, he that's, that's interesting. That's interesting. And then, then we knew it was no good at all. <laughs> well, my cast would look at it, say, very nice, and put it down the table and go back rehearsing the old scene. Another thing that strikes me with, the, with all of you here uh, is, is the kind of quiet, non-spoken or unsung, if you will, pun intended, uh, attraction that everybody has around here for, for things musical and music. Uh, uh, Terence is a particular hero of mine in another direction he doesn't know about. Uh, and Many of you probably know that he is often asked to be a panelist on the Metropolitan Opera Quiz. Uh, so he's a great, uh, and very, very knowledgeable, and I'm in awe of his knowledge. I also see in M. Butterfly, <coughs> the Madame Butterfly uh, connection, if you will. Uh, and, I, and I know uh, Bob, and of course we are dealing with that. How, what, and you write to music, which is in interesting to me, which has to do with, a, in, in a sense, the work uh, approach that people take. I mean, does, does those, are those kinds of things that we know about beyond the, the clippings and all, does that drive you? Do, the, do, do things musical have a great deal to say to you all? It seems to be. Um, well, I feel, I mean, Butterfly actually uses the, the, the music from Puccini as right. well as the, uh, as well as Chinese <laughs> opera music. Um, but I, I was brought up as a musician rather than as a writer or any sort of theater person. I was brought up as a violinist. And then in college, I became a jazz violinist, and I did that for many years. And so to me, writing has always been an extension of music. Um, I, don't, I feel that I'm a better writer than I am a musician, but the process to me is fairly similar um, in terms of improvisation, particularly as you write a first draft. I think writing the first draft of a play is very much like improvising jazz. Um, and you try and have some sort of structure, and you, you know basically where you're going, but you're not exactly sure how you're going to get there. And so to me, music, there's a lot of relationship between music and the theater. Fascinating. Now, I just wondered, when did you leave music and start writing? Oh, um, well, I did both for a while. Basically, when I was in college, I, I started doing more. Where was this? Uh, at Stanford. Mm -hmm. um, I started doing more writing and less music. Did you study in, um, writing? Did you study playwriting? Did you well, Stanford doesn't have a playwriting program per se. What I did was I found an advisor who uh, I showed him a few plays that I'd written. He said they were really bad and uh, <laughs> that I should read. Uh, that I was trying to write plays in a vacuum, that I should really read uh, plays and stuff. So for many years, I just tried to see and read as much as I could, and that was the bulk of my education. Um, and I also worked with a, a professor named Martin Estlin, um, who was at Stanford. And that was how I began writing. And then I wrote FOB, which was my first play my senior year at Stanford. And um, then I kept, kept writing. But did you send that to Joe Papp? And I actually sent it, it to, to George White. To uh, I sent oh, yeah. it to the, <laughs> the uh, O'Neill Playwrights Conference, which, oh. um, I mean, it's a great way. I recommend it to all <laughs> playwrights in general, but particularly young playwrights, um, because I there's a certain major regional theater to whom I sent the play, which will go un uh, unnamed, and as well as sending it to the O'Neill. And the regional sent it back, and the O'Neill accepted it. And then after it was done at the O'Neill, the artistic director of the regional came up to me and said, this is such a wonderful play. How come you didn't send it to me? And it's one of those great moments in a playwright's life you know, <laughs> where, you can say, where you can say, well, actually, I did, and you sent it back, and here's the letter. Um, <laughs> but, but my point being that, that the O'Neill really looks out for new talent and, and is receptive to it in a way that some of the regionals uh, would like to be, but perhaps are not able to. This was not a setup. I don't <laughs> <know>. <laughs> 
<laughs> do, do, does opera influence you, Terry? Oh, very, I mean, very, in the back much. of your mind, things come to you that you mm -hmm. say, oh my God, that's... Uh, I, I think sometimes that's what's wrong with my plays, is they're okay. a little operatic, and I like to write arias and duets, but <laughs> I had a, a, a nun, a, uh, an Ursula nun, right out of the world of Inorado or Krista Rang as a child, and uh, at, in the sixth grade, she used to bring in uh, uh, Puccini love duets every Friday, and much of the dismay of all my classmates, but the first time I heard Puccini <laughs> in the voice of... Beniamino Gili, I loved it, and I, like at six years old, I was hooked on opera, and that was my real obsession, was opera. And I used to campaign and save money to get up to Dallas to see the opera when the Met was on tour. I grew up in Corpus Christi, which certainly didn't have an opera mm. company. And um, that's one of the reasons I probably chose Columbia, was to go to the opera. And I think that's, that was my first theater, really, was opera. And musical comedy, my parents were both New Yorkers. And they would come home from trips to New York once a year and leave playbills on their coffee table as a status symbol. And, <laughs> and, uh, but, so, but from a very early age, I heard shows like Kiss Me Kate was my father's favorite. And uh, he had very good taste, I think. Uh, that's a pretty good score still. And uh, so music was always an opera and were always there. Uh, very much so, yeah. And the, uh, just, the, just yesterday, I was in New Orleans, I came back, and Paul had told me to go to Preservation Hall. And for the first time, I really got a sense of how you can really learn from jazz seeing it. It was so visual to me, these six guys playing Dixieland, the way they were talking to one another through the instruments. And I spent about three hours there. And I learned a lot about playwriting, I feel, watching these guys talk to one another that way and just developing one theme, you know. When I first went in there doing Careless Love, which, thank God, it was a song I knew, <laughs> so I could also enjoy the improvisations and the way they would go back and forth. And it was a very long set, and it was just, thank you for telling me about that place, because I thought it was probably some terrible tourist. You know, Preservation Hall sounds so... Uh, they phony, still have, yeah. They still have the hat outside the door. Yeah. Throw a oh, dollar into it if you want to. And the set, the room itself is theater. I mean, yeah. it's this tiny yes. little room, and you sit on the floor, and they're in rocking chairs or little bench, or little stools. It's <coughs> beautiful. Extraordinary. Yes, yeah, so it's interesting. We have a jazz musician here. Mm -hmm. Now that's it. It's intriguing that everybody, there's, there's, as I say, there's the underscoring here of music that I feel in this whole panel. So well, many. The musical structure, I think, is. I'm glad I learned something about it in college, uh, about the way things are put together. Uh, the sonata form can sort of help you sometimes mm -hmm. when you're writing a play, I, subliminally, or you know, way you're unconscious. That you where uh, could I ask? Where did you go to school? Columbia. Uh, Columbia, uh, all the way road. through. Yeah, mm -hmm. well, only four years. I mean, long <laughs> enough. No, I didn't, I didn't mean flunk that. out if that's what you. <laughs> I almost no, quit after graduate. And, and did you start playing and start writing then? No, I, I, I wanted to be a journalist, uh, mm -hmm. I guess an opera critic, I probably <laughs> wanted to be. And I wrote the Varsity Show while I was at Columbia, and I thought nothing of it, you know, that... And then, like, a year later, I decided to write a play, and... Uh, but it was quite a while before I said, oh, I'm writing plays, and I'm earning a living doing it. It was... I didn't grow up wanting to be... I wanted to be a great journalist. I wanted to write for Time Magazine, I think, was my... Not the New York Times? No, no. <laughs> you couldn't get that in Texas. I wanted something that mom and dad would say. We've been talking about playwriting here. At, at the, the seminar is called The Playwright Director. And we have playwrights without directors being represented and directors and a playwright. I wonder how you feel about the director to your play. John Dexter came to you from another world, in a sense. Did, how did you work together? We had a very 
um, I think, seamless collaboration. Actually, it was almost a three-way collaboration between Dexter, myself, and Stuart Ostro. And uh, one thing Stuart insisted on uh, was we had breakfast every Monday. And this gave everybody a chance to throw out everything that they were upset about and really plot the course. I mean, not just that, but also constructively to plot the course for uh, the rehearsals for the next week. And I, so I think that everybody's concerns were, were really taken into account in the process. And I found Dexter to be extremely, uh, I mean, not only was he knowledgeable, not only does he tell good stories about theater history, but um, he's just extremely respectful of the written word and uh, extremely respectful of authors. And one thing that, I, that he did, which I thought was great, was he would always follow the stage direction to the letter first. Okay, so we'd at least try it. And then... <laughs> Because a lot of directors don't. You know, a lot of directors assume the stage direction was sort of there. To, uh, the writer amused himself while he was writing by, <laughs> by adding these stage directions. Um, and sometimes he knew more, actually, more about the stage directions than I did. But I think that that was to some degree reflective of the, of the uh, regard with which he holds the author and the written word. Did Ostro bring Dexter in? How did yeah, he? it was Stuart's idea because... Yeah, I so. yeah, I actually hadn't been that familiar with his work. And, and so what we did was we met here in New York. And what John decided to do was read, the two of us would read the play together. And I read half the parts and he read half the parts. And this allowed us to see if we were reading the same play, if we were talking about the same play. And it was very, it was, uh, John is extremely practical. And so he doesn't like to spend a lot of time kind of theorizing about things. And he'd much rather, you know, that was a very practical way to get that information down. Well, I think that's from doing opera, mm -hmm. where you have to do it in bits and pieces. Mm -hmm. and a certain length of time and yeah. get everything out of that hour or two that you're given. Because he's really more better known as an opera director than a Broadway director. I, I simply wanted to ask, it's probably not on the agenda, but uh, nobody has mentioned here the uh, thing that is now very timely, I guess, because it comes up more and more, namely that of a legal relationship between authors and directors. Uh, and I know that doesn't exist in the case of Anything Goes. I have no idea if it exists in the case of anybody else's experience here. This is, uh, I mean, simply a point where, where the director, in some way or other, feels him or herself to be a co-author and therefore wants uh, some ownership interest of the property. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, this is decided differently in each case, but it's now become very common. And uh, whereas originally I think this probably came from a point when a director actually was a co-author and sat and worked on the play for months and months. There are now many directors who want, as a part of their deal, to have a piece of subsidiary rights or of copyright ownership or something in the play. Um, that is always a point of tension, needless to say, between authors and directors. And uh, I was curious as to whether anybody on the panel has had uh, experience with it. I think it's a good point. Do you like to? Bob, if you, I would think you In my experience, <coughs> It's happened differently on different productions. There have been times when I have been involved as a co-adapter with an author. There have been times when, as a director, I've been doing what I call is the normal director's job of, 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 of planning a production in terms of physically what's going to happen and psychologically, emotionally, all of the things that a director does. If I ever sit down at a typewriter and say, wait a minute, I have an idea about this scene, then I start to say, wait a minute, I'm contributing to the shaping of this thing really much more specifically than just making suggestions. Or, uh, I'm, I'm now beginning to, I've gone over a line. So that's sort of the line that I've drawn for myself. I've, I've suddenly, I've, I've suddenly, suddenly uh, there, are, there are words or, or things that I've specifically done in terms of structuring which are, are part of the text that are going to continue long after I'm gone. Then I'll, then I'll say, and then I will say usually uh, 
to my legal representative or whoever's working for me. Uh, I don't know, maybe I did 5% of this, of this, maybe I did eight, you know, what do you think is fair, I would say, to the author in terms of how, what would you, if you put a value on my contribution, is it 1% or is it nothing? Uh, there's another side of this which has to do with the fact that if a production of, if you've helped as a director to really shape a production conceptually, and that is a conception which is going to go on, let's say, in the continued life of a play. Um, the director is usually, you know, out after the play is over in its initial production. But if you have contributed really to, to, to the work in the sense that its shape is the result of your imagination, then you want to participate in this, in a way, uh, the, uh, in its continued life. The other thing that, that, that comes up is, uh, if, let's say, a production moves to the point where a new product, let's say a production is done in a regional theater and a Broadway producer comes in and says, well, I want to do it, but I want to change the director and I want to change the cast and I, I want to have, you know, so-and-so do this play. Well, then you're out, but, it may, but you, you could at least contribute, you can at least you get a contribution back from what you helped. To, in other words, it wouldn't have gotten that far without you as the director. Now it got that far and you're cut out of it, so you want to, you feel a little bit cheated, you know. So you, would, so you say, all right, well, I've been, cut out, I've been cut out of the New York production, but this hasn't happened to me, but I've heard other directors talk about this. Uh, I've been cut out of the New York production, all right, well, at least I'll get money, <laughs> you know. Well, I think that that comes into what you said, but we're going to have to come back to this after our question and answer period when you talked about the children, that you consider them children. You either are proud of the way your children grew up and say, well, look, I, I created these wonderful children. You're not asking for anything else other than that, or do you want to have money from what you have put into having your children show how bright they are? And I think that's part of what we're going to pick up after this. We're going to have a question and answer period. We're going to break, and so please, do not go away, but prepare your questions and give it to the wing volunteers that are around. There is so much to ask of this panel, so please do it quickly. Thank you. I want you to. <clears throat>
We're continuing the American Theatre Wing seminars on working in the theatre, which are coming to you from the City University, the Graduate Center, located right on 42nd Street, the heart of the theatre. I'm Isabel Stevenson, and we have a panel that's just simply wonderful today, and it is on the playwright-director. We've been talking about the creative process, but now, in the middle of all of that, we begin talking about money, and so we're going to continue <laughs> with that subject of money, and how do the panelists feel, and we're going to go around that as president of the American Theatre Wing, I'm taking the first question here in this question and answer period. I want to know how you feel about a director who puts in a lot of work in a play. Uh, does that director then share in the profits as co-playwright or as adapter, or does he continue with his role as director? And perhaps we might ask Gene uh, Dalrymple and George White, who are co-moderators of this, to elicit that question, that answer from the panelists today. Yeah, I, I, I'll pick up on that uh, in, in one way. I'd like to um, refer to, to Bob Calfin here, uh, going back a ways to Candide, because there was a, uh, a work that has had a long history and a long, difficult road uh, and ultimate success. I uh, remember the uh, original production, uh, which seemed to have too many cooks, where there were authors, I don't know how many were involved in that. Um, but Bob, you could address that whole thing, and then how one's, you know, going back to the director's share in that. Tell me a little bit about the whole uh, experience on Candide and how that evolved. Well, first I should clarify that I did not direct Candide. I understand. <laughs> Hal Prince directed that, Candide. Yes, I know, but you produced it, or you well, were involved well, with it. Again, this is, there I was functioning as the artistic director of an institution, mm -hmm. and as a director and as a theater person, I always loved Candide and I loved the score, and I'm old enough to have gone to the original Broadway production, uh, which left an impression on me. And everybody always loved the score of Candide, and people would always say, well, the book didn't quite work, or the production didn't quite work. And I, I just felt that that was something that should be not just left to be a record, that it should be a, something that is part of continuing living theater. Um, John Latouche and uh, Richard, I'm going to blank on his Wilbur. Richard Wilbur, and I think there was a third lyricist. I don't, I don't know if Sondheim was involved at the beginning. There were three lyricists, plus Lillian Hellman as the author of the book. And I think Ogden Nash had something. Ogden Nash contributed. Yes, everybody was there. Was a and now here was this work, which was very, very complicated. Uh, which a lot of pe which people had disowned. I started uh, saying, well, I'm going to... Well, I also had an idea conceptually about it. I felt that it's, when I saw it as a director, that it suffered from, you know, what is that quote, more scenery than Yosemite, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. it, and it got in the way, and it got in the way of the thing moving and, and, and flying and, and having the impetus that it needed. So this was the director side of me thinking, saying there must be a way that this could move like a Shakespearean production where you come on stage and you say, now we're in Rome, and you're in Rome, and that's it. You're in Rome, you don't have night nine tons of stuff flying in and going off. And if you know Candide, you know it travels all over the world, uh, Lisbon, South America, etc. Uh, so the first thing I did was, uh, again, this is a, the director as impetus, or as midwife, I would say. <laughs> I, I, there was a young writer, playwright, who was an intern at my theater. I said, just do two scenes with this concept in mind of how it might flow you know, that it's a bare stage or an empty stage and no scenery coming in, but the audience knows where you are all the time. I then uh, started correspondence with Lillian Hellman. 
uh, about, you know, how would you, what would you think about something happening with this? Uh, eventually, I, I brought it to Hal, Hal Prince, who brought in Hugh Wheeler to adapt the book, whom he had worked with before. Everybody, you know, accumulates these teams of like-minded people, as you referred earlier, that, that you work with and you know that they know what you're talking about and you develop a kind of shorthand. And certainly Hal had that relationship with Hugh Wheeler. Hugh Wheeler and Hal and I then approached Lillian Hellman and she at that point felt, uh, well, she had done that and she really was through with it. And good luck, <laughs> you know, <laughs> go on. Uh, then there was the, pr the question of, well, if there was going to be a new book, I mean, Lenny, Lenny was there all along. He, he was delighted that it was, you know, not just going to be a record uh, and willing to do anything to, to help, help that thing develop. Okay, we needed some new lyrics because with the rewriting, uh, rewrite and also the, the new concept of the production, which Eugene Lee, again, again, how does a work get shaped? Eugene Lee had done two environmental productions at my theater where the audience sat in the middle and platforms and ramps and all of that all over the place. A, a production called Slave Ship and then another production that I directed uh, before uh, Candide. Um, so we suggested this designer to Hal and Hal had an idea about circus and, and, and the, the designer and Hal then started cooking. Again, you say it's all in casting. There are, Hal Prince was cast with Eugene Lee for an idea that I had as, a, as the director of an institution of how this play might work. Um, then we needed new lyrics. And so Hal called Steve Sondheim and said, hey, could you fix this or could you redo this? Legally, that was very complica complicated because there were all the old contracts of every, everyone who had been involved in the production in 1956. I think this was, I forgot what year we did, we did it, uh, when we did it in New York in our revival. But uh, I remember we, they were negotiating one-sixteenth of a percent, you know, uh, in distri dis distributing these rights. Everybody finally agreed because they wanted it to happen. And that's the bottom line, is you want it to happen, it'll get on, you know. And uh, suddenly you're not going to, for your one-sixteenth instead of a one-eighteenth or one-twentieth of a percent, going to stop a production from happening. And if you, so you want to stop it? Fine, then there's no show. <laughs> okay, forget it, you know. Well, that's one way of ending okay. it. Okay. I think that um, Paul Benedict had something to say about that. We were talking before, and, and uh, would you like to pick uh, yes. up on that? Uh, actually, this makes me very nervous, the idea of getting paid for, for input on lines in a playwright's play. <laughs> uh, I think in, with review material and possibly with musicals, it makes a kind of sense, particularly if it's review material and you're, as a director, you come up with either the a whole notion of a scene with a very funny punchline or 11 of the best laughs mm -hmm. in the show or something. Perhaps you could start to feel you had some creative um, ownership there. Mm. But uh, it seems to me the, what you're after in a rehearsal attitude is an open-minded playwright to whom you can say, this doesn't seem to quite work. It seems to me it should go something along the lines of, or an actor or an actress can say to the playwright, I come to this point in your speech and the next line is a wonderful line, but I cannot get to it emotionally. And the playwright will often say, what are you, what are you saying? What would you like to say there? And the, and the actor will say something like, and it seems to me it's legitimate for the playwright to either say, uh, no, my line is better, or, yes, I like that, I'll go home and write something like that, or say that. So I think there has to be a creative input of, of dialogue and lines. I can't imagine getting paid for, for um, coming up with a line or two in a, in a play, in a, in a playwright's play, while you've got the playwright there working. It seems to me it's part of the process. Part of your direction, part of your, your tending 
of the piece, of the event, uh, I think that's included in it, what you finally end up with. You're there to make the best possible event communicate to an audience, and that's just a piece of it, I think. I totally agree with what you said about, about that. Uh, the only time I've ever, as I said, asked for it is when I've suddenly sat down at a typewriter and rewritten a whole mm. section of the play, and oh. that was then used. And uh, I, I, I really think the director's job and the actor's job is to reverse the process that the playwright went through went through in the sense that he arrives at these words at this moment after going through all the possibilities and these are the best words for this moment and so I mean that is what directing what yeah. the director's job is to unravel all of that um, the happiest relationship I've had in the theater with living playwrights have been when they've been part of the team in the rehearsal hall saying hey try this or hey can we try that or an, an actor says hey you know what I really want to say here is this well, how does that seem to you and then the Playwright goes away and thinks about it and says, no, <laughs> you know, what I meant was this, or, you know, that's a better idea, let's try that. And what happens, the truth of the matter, in terms of this collaboration is that it ends up being totally impersonal because it's not about me or you, it's what, what works. If it works, fine, that's it. Mm -hmm. Who cares about the discussion? If it works, you use it. If it doesn't work, you throw it out. <laughs> you know? I think the issue that Jeremy raised originally, the uh, a director asking to be a part in the, in the future of the play, the subsidiary rights, is the, mo the one I'm most concerned with. Uh, at the Dramatist Guild, we feel very strongly the playwright has three things. The, the copyright on his play, his subsidiary rights, which means other performances of your play. It's done once in New York, fine. What happens when it's done in Tulsa or Santa Fe? And uh, our royalties, which is what we earn each week from the box office. And the Dramatist Guild feels very strongly that those belong to the author of the play. And I am the author of Frankie and Johnny. Paul is the director. Paul and I collaborated very closely on the play and very happily, but I want Paul to get the best possible contract he can from the producer of the play. I don't want Paul putting his hand in my pocket saying, the producer won't give me more money, but I want some of yours. And that's where I think a lot of we writers say, wait a minute now, if you want to hire, uh, Mike Nichols is always held up as an example of this, fine if someone wants to pay Mike Nichols all the uh, terms he demands, let them come from the producer's pocket, not from the author's. We do feel differently, however, on a musical, if the director has been involved from the very first day, which is a common event now, that a director will come to the writers saying, hey, I've got an idea, there's a musical in The Phantom of the Opera, say, and he is there from the very beginning in shaping the show. That is very, very different than a director coming along saying, because of my reputation or because I may add some business during the show, I think up front you should consider me as one of the owners of the property. And that's really what, when you get into the ownership of the play, then it's a very, very different situation. And I'm very, very much against that. If the director has not been present in the year or two it took you to write the play, why is he, that's the worst kind of bully, bully, uh, attitude in the theater, I think, when you... I think that the directors here would agree yeah. with you on that. Well, I hope, I hope they, they, uh, they do, because it's, it's, uh, it's becoming more and more of an issue. Uh, yes, uh, I know, and you're uh, going to have to address that. He's on the skill, and I'm a... But right I'm now, a, we have <laughs> a lot of <laughs> questions from our audience, and, and I don't want to take up any more time. They're all important, and, and let's come along and see if we can't get back to this. Hello, my name is David Carlion. Uh, this question is addressed to the panel. I was curious what any of you thought about the Tony Awards uh, being restricted, still being restricted to Broadway productions, if it should be expanded to off-Broadway or New York theater. 
Well, let's do that very quickly. <laughs> I, I feel passionately that the Tony Award should acknowledge Off-Broadway. I think it's uh, when, every, when consistently prizes like the Pulitzer Prize are given to plays that come from Off-Broadway or regional theaters, to ignore them, I think is very, very... Uh, I think I'm going to answer you, you so we don't go around that. Uh, I think that it's important that Off-Broadway be recognized by the Tony Awards, and I hope that at some point it will be. Soon, so let's now come on to the next question. Hi, my name is Lawrence Applebaum. My question is for the directors. How do you feel about working with dead, deceased playwrights? <laughs> I find them the most wonderful collaborators. <laughs> <laughs> It's tricky because um, uh, often the play isn't, isn't at its best uh, and uh, you're stuck with it. And I'm, I include the classics, uh, if he were alive or she were alive. I think when you do Shakespeare, for example, y you have to keep in mind that this was a very young man with a great sense of humor who was way ahead of his time. <clears throat> time. And if you had him there, it would be an enormous fun to do the play and also you'd have a lot of give and take. And you've got to remember, you mustn't do, a, 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 for example, a Shakespearean play uh, in a w with the, with the uh, respect one gives a classic and not holding on to the fact that if you had the play right there, what he would be interested in is the liveliest communication possible between the audience and uh, himself. He'd want it to be alive and very funny and, and strong and uh, beautiful. And uh, um, they are easier to work with, I'll say that. But, uh, <laughs> um, Thank you. Does that answer? My name is Alison Carney, and this question is directed to David Wong. In what ways did the New York Shakespeare Festival support you as a young playwright? Um, completely. <laughs> uh, I, th after going through my experience with George White, um, Joe Papp then picked up my first play, FOB, and um, uh, Joe did that. And then at that point, uh, he said, well, I'll really produce anything that you write. And uh, as uh, with the experience that Terrence was talking about earlier, it creates this incredible um, a liberation uh, for, for the writer because it really is saying to you, well, let your imagination run free. Don't worry about these commercial constraints. And, um, f and then he did produce four more of my plays. So that um, even though he didn't produce this play, um, that's having that experience and being able to do five plays in your early 20s in New York is invaluable in terms of being able to develop you as a playwright. Thank you. Thank you. Would you come up, please? Hi, my name is Carol Srugel, and my question is addressed to George White. As president of the Eugene O'Neill Center up in um, Connecticut, um, I was wondering if you could talk a little, about, uh, a little bit about the National Theater Program, which is held there twice a year. Uh, you mean the National Theater Institute? Yeah, the National Theater I'll Institute. I'll do that uh, very briefly, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a program for, uh, for students, uh, undergraduates and graduates, using um, the best uh, available professionals to teach all the disciplines of the theater. It's a kind of Marine Corps basic for all aspects of the theater. And indeed, we work with the theater wing on master classes, too, which have, uh, where we have uh, major uh, interpreters of, of, of uh, for instance, Chekhov or Shakespeare come from wherever they are in the world and work with master actors uh, as well as part of that program. So it's a two-semester program, and then we have this adjunct program with the theater wing. It's an excellent one. Thank Thanks. you. I'm Sarah Jackson, and my question is addressed to the panel, and that is, how do you write stage directions, and how many stage directions do you write? 
David, Terry. I, I, I try to write very few uh, now. I think it's relevant when a character enters or exits, or if they stab somebody, do something <laughs> violent. Or, but other than that, I sort of leave them alone now. For the, I let the director. Uh, but my stage directions used to be more. I don't know. Uh, if you ever did this, I used to underline words a lot because I wanted the words spoken a certain way. I've let go of that very fast with my second play after working with Elaine May. She said, what are these words underlined? I said, that's the word they're supposed to emphasize when they say it. She said, oh, really? <laughs> so I'm glad I got that out of my system real soon. But uh, there is a course at Yale, I'm told about now, the directors all take called Exploding the Text, which as a playwright makes me shudder <laughs> the implications where, you know, you start with Chekhov and throw, you know, you set it in a rocket ship right away and get the cosmic implications of Three Sisters. And that's quite frightening to a living playwright knowing there's <laughs> hundreds of people in New Haven exploding text. Right. Uh, it's been going on. Uh, we bombed in New Haven. Yes, and we bombed. David, uh, 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 I write. I also try to write as few as possible. I, I, there's something that Breck did that I find really interesting, which is this notion that if you that you embed the action into the text, so that um, so if I want someone to come in with a cup, I'll say, uh, you know, someone will. This is a very simple example, but someone will go, and here's your drink too, <laughs> um, you know, and that way you just make because they can't cut the words. Uh, but I'm also very interested in sort of visual relationships and theatricality, and so to the extent that that's necessary to put in the text, uh, particularly a play like Butterfly, I do put the, those in the stage directions. I, when Tim and I were rewriting Anything Goes, I think uh, Tim will agree with me. If we found ourselves being preoccupied with the stage directions, we knew we were in trouble. It's like we're, instead of writing dialogue, we were writing some substitute for it uh, because we really didn't know what to do with the scene and what to do with the character. Does that answer it? Yes. Which, your <laughs> Thank next you. question. Hi, I'm Lou Ann Pavlin, and my question is for the directors, Mr. Benedict and Mr. Calvin. What are some of the differences between working in New York as opposed to out of town? Depends where in New York. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would always rather work in New York, but of course there are obvious reasons for that. You know, the, one is the audiences, one is uh, the money's better, um, one is that you're supported by the theatrical event of the city constantly, and you have resources here. I've had a lot of luck and a lot of success working in regional theaters, and I'm very fond of them. I started as an actor in Boston in a regional theater and stayed six years before I came to New York and directed there too. So, I'm, I mean, I'm close to regional theaters, and I support them very much. Um, you want to take this, and I'll think well, about what the, the main difference for me has been when I've been, when I've directed out of New York, and the actors have also come from out of New York, is that there's nothing else to do except continue to think and talk about the play. You're not running off to your audition, and, oh, I've got to do my laundry, and, oh, I'm going to the dentist. It really has to do with, it almost gives you more rehearsal time because you're much more focused and concentrated. That's what you're there for. And you may eat dinner together or take your day off together, and you're eventually going to end up talking about what you're working on. And so it, 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 it kind of concentrates you even more. That's one of the main benefits. That takes us back to that out-of-town openings of, yeah. of being able to have that once more. I think yes. maybe, maybe the single mo most important ingredient from my point of view, maybe yours, Bob, when you go to a regional theater, you have a given company of actors. I've never worked at one regional theater where there weren't at least a few superb actors, and you're very lucky to have them. But you also must cast from their company. And if you're doing a large cast show, you often have to have end up with actors who are, are talented, but not the people you would have chosen and not like the people you would have chosen for the play. And in New York, of course, your freedom of casting is much, much more evident. Thank, Thank you. you.
My name is Mary Burns, and my question is for Robert Calvin. I wonder if you can speak about your experiences of working with an Asian-American cast on Rashomon. The cast in Rashomon were American actors who happened to have been born of Asian-American descent, period. Uh, they, uh, some of them were half Japanese, predominantly of, of Japanese descent, some of them were half Japanese. Uh, army brats from American servicemen who were stationed <laughs> in Japan. Uh, my actors were from Chicago, New York, California, and Hawaii. They're American actors, <laughs> period. I, what can I say? There's, if I would say there are uh, any, any differences, well, the differences were of opportunity in terms of how much opportunity they had, they had to work, how much experience they had, because they, you know, my actors were, uh, are capable of playing all kinds of roles, not just Asian roles, you know. And uh, I think two of my best trained actors uh, came from the University of Hawaii, uh, where they were trained to do not only Chekhov and Moliere and Shakespeare and Shaw, but also Kabuki and No, and had both disciplines as techniques at their, at their disposal, and, and it enhanced both, both the East and West in their acting, to be able to draw on both. Uh, I think it's both basically a, a question of opportunity. I had actors in that, in my cast, who I would love to do a Shaw play with, whatever, you know. Okay. Thank you. I'm David Price. I teach for City University of New York. This is a question, really, we can start today and maybe finish up with the production uh, seminar tomorrow. It has to do with M. Butterfly and its visual conception in the set. And I was talking a minute to David Wong before. Uh, how much of the visual concept of that production was your idea and how much was influenced by the other designers and production crew? Um, what I found was that uh, the actual physicalization of it, um, I think, is the director's job and the designer's job. I had in my mind a concept of relationships, of how it is that um, I would say someone should be upstage with someone else while they're singing this aria and then th this person fades out. and this. Um, but I'm not very visual, so I can't actually see what this is going to look like in my head. I just know theoretically that it would be interesting to have someone, to have, uh, for instance, at the opening of the show, uh, someone coming down doing Chinese opera movement to the music, uh, to, to Unbeldi or something like that. And I find th that that's fascinating, but I don't exactly know what that's going to look like. So that the look of the show um, is strictly the um, John Dexter and Eiko Ishioka. It's their collaboration. And they're the ones who decided on the ramp, on the, you know, the, the, the shoji screens, everything. Um, and when I saw it, and uh, as it developed, I sort of went, yes, that was what I had in mind. But I didn't know that that was what I had in mind. <laughs> this goes back to the question about stage directions as well. You know, there's no one way to do anything. And I hope there never is in terms of the theater. That they'd always, I mean, as a director, I would say that I do read the stage directions to find out what, what the author visualized and what the author intended. I also do a whole bunch of ideas for myself, which I also then throw out. You know, uh, sometimes uh, you are inspired by by an image, or you know, there's this thing called the conceptual director, where you have a concept for how you're going to do a play. Uh, when that works at its best, it's not saying, "Oh, I'm going to do." Let, wouldn't it be fun to do it as though it took place on the moon? Usually, if you're going to do a conceptual thing, which results in the whole production design all the way through, it comes out of the. If it's right, it's coming out of what the play is about and what the author's trying to say, and how can you enhance that? How can you communicate that? How can you make that even clearer by what you're doing? And so, I mean, the, the, the concept comes out of what the play is about, basically, when it, 
when it's, when it's most successful rather than being imposed on it. I, uh, we've, we've strayed from the, the word and the director, but so wonderfully giving us so much more information. But I like one last kind of sentence, one last line, one last thought from all of you on the panel as to how best to help people who want to be a playwright, who want to be a director. What would you say? We'll start with Paul, won't you? What would you say? Uh, gosh, how to... Quickly. Oh, well, what comes to mind? It's difficult. Well, I was going to say stay away from New York if you, at the beginning of it okay. uh, for playwrights and directors because you, you need time to uh, work things out for yourself. Your, your hope is to get in with a group of good people. If you're going to be a director, uh, you, you've got to... It doesn't do you any good to work with... Um, with uh, minimum talents. You've got to keep trying around and work with people and learn the process. It helps a great deal, I think, if you, if you either are an actor or have, uh, have done a little work that way. Um, playwrights, how do you advise a playwright how to start? I think it must be almost impossible to get a play done in, in New York. I always admire it when they manage it. I don't know how they do it. Um, I, no, I don't know how to advise a playwright to begin. You I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, uh, the first theater piece I wrote was Pacific Overtures, and I wrote it while I was at law school. So uh, I've, uh, generalizing from my experience, that going to law school seems to be the way to begin. If you, <laughs> if you, can, you can figure out another way, uh, you're better off. But that's good. David? Um, I already said send stuff to the O'Neill. Um, and uh, I think that a playwright should dare New York. I think that a playwright should come to New York for a while. Whether or not you plan to live your, all your life, I don't anymore. I live in Los Angeles. But I lived here for four years, and I think that was important. And the other thing that I think is important is um, don't think about what's commercial. Uh, because if you try and write something that's commercial and it doesn't turn out to be commercial, then you've betrayed yourself, and also you didn't make the money. So it's better. You have just as even a chance of something being commercial that you also happen to like in your heart. Uh, for being a playwright, I would have to say it certainly helps uh, having a father who is one. Uh, that, was, uh, that was my route in. And uh, 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 aside from that, I can't say. I, I would say to anyone who wants to write plays, see every play in the world, read every play in the world, starting with Aeschylus. Don't see one play and say, oh, I'd like to write a play and think... That's all it takes. I think you've got to be totally... That's how I learned, was from going to the theater and reading. Thank you very much. Robert, I can't ask you how you play, but I think your words that you have spoken here will, will answer an awful lot of the questions that were to be asked. It's time to, to say that once more I'm interrupting this wonderful, wonderful panel of information and knowledge, and I have to say that... Uh, we're grateful to you. I thank you very much. I'm president of the American Theater Wing, which is bringing you these seminars on working in the theater, and they are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. The seminars that we have presented to you are on the performance, they're on the play script director, and on the production. Today's seminar was on the play script director, and a wonderful panelist it was, too. Thank you.